Chapter 28 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 28 The Organization and Administration of the Hellenistic States. 337 to 30 BC. Local Organization of Alexander's Empire Our knowledge of the local organization of Alexander's Empire, inherited from the Persians and modified by himself and his successors, is extremely scant, excepting for Asia Minor and Egypt. The conqueror began the work of reorganization soon after the victory of Granicus, when the Hellenic cities along the western coast of Anatolia came onto his hands. These communities he treated with the utmost consideration. The oligarchies and tyrannies which had favored Persia he overthrew, and recalling the exiles he established democracies. The cities were left autonomous under a body of laws approved by the king. They were to recognize him as their leader in war, and to furnish naval and land forces to serve under his command. Those especially favored were exempt from all payments, whereas the free city-states which had not won their way to the king's good graces rendered an annual payment made honorable by the title of contributions. All classes of cities thus far mentioned were looked upon as allies. Others, which had dared resist his arms, were held, at least temporarily, in subjection and compelled to pay the ordinary tributes. Roads Among the Greek cities to profit most by the conquest were those along the western coast and on the neighboring islands of Asia Minor, not only through their enlarged opportunity for commerce, but also through the paternal favor of the kings. The most brilliant city of the region was Rhodes, which had taken the place of Peiraeus as the commercial center of the Aegean area and had extended her lines of traffic throughout the Mediterranean world. In 170, her revenue from imports and exports, probably at the uniform rate of 2%, was 1 million drachmas which represents a commerce diminutive according to modern standards, but splendid for that age. This state maintained her independence by the bravery of her citizens, and her policy was to cultivate peace and friendship with the entire world. As a result, wealth abounded. The poor were provided for by the government, and the rich lived luxuriously in sumptuous dwellings. The city was not only a storehouse for merchandise, but the home of art and eloquence. The citizens were intelligent and maintained a high sense of public honor. Temple Estates In the interior of Asia Minor, the task of adapting existing conditions to the will of the conquerors remained to the Seleucidae. Here were found two forms of feudal estates, centering respectively in the square turreted castles of the grandees and in the temples. The castles had existed from the 8th century BC 
and had been tolerated perforce by Lydian and Persian kings. In the course of centuries, the Hellenistic rulers suppressed them, and either incorporated these states in the royal domain, or assigned them to cities. In the temple estate, the priest had control of the extensive lands belonging to it, and exercised authority over the people, who in some communities were numbered by the thousands. Among them were attendants on the deity, but the great majority cultivated the soil as peasants. At the annual festival in honor of the deity, there was held a fair, at which the peasants could display their produce for sale and make purchases of the traders who came in from neighboring lands. The gathering of the people from near and far for worship, trade, and pleasure was a source of profit to the priests. The Hellenistic kings dared not suppress these religious potentates, but deprived them of political power, and in some instances of a part of their territory. Often the king settled a colony on the temple estate and subjected the priest to the government of the new city. Alexander's Plan of Colonization Alexander founded a great number of colonies, more than seventy as Plutarch states, distributing them over the empire in accordance with its needs, and the Seleucidae, following in his footsteps, planted an equal number. They were to provide homes for the worn-out veterans, to garrison the conquered country, and, at least in Alexander's plan, to Hellenize the empire. As a rule, therefore, they included a nucleus of retired soldiers and of Greek businessmen, around whom clustered a multitude of natives. Among the mercenaries of the Seleucidae, however, were a few Greeks, and in general it may be said that Hellenic civilization penetrated but a little way beyond the walls of the colony. Among the largest, Alexandria numbered 300,000 free souls, and perhaps 100,000 slaves. Antioch, the Seleucid capital, was but slightly inferior, whereas Seleucia on the Tigris continued to grow till in the first century of our era the population numbered 600,000. The Wealth of Egypt The importance of Alexandria came not merely from her position as capital of a wealthy kingdom, but even more from her commercial activities. Her harbors brought her into touch with the whole Mediterranean world, while her canal, which connected her with the Nile, was the first stage in the long voyage to India. From the Nile it was possible to convey merchandise to the Red Sea, either by canal or overland. Usually, however, the merchant fleets of Egypt sailed along the coast of Arabia till they met and exchanged cargoes with the fleets of India. Under the late Ptolemies this traffic declines, to be magnificently revived by Augustus. In addition to commerce, Egypt derived great wealth from her manufactures. Her shops produced substantially all the papyrus used throughout the world, and with the vast number of writers in the city, the publication of books became a thriving business. The aromatics imported from Arabia and from far-off India were here transformed into incense and toilet perfumes. Drugs and medicines were prepared for use. 
in the neighborhood an abundance of vitrifiable earth was employed for the production of glass of very rich colors. Equally important were the textiles, including tapestries and both coarse and fine dress materials. The fine linens of biblical renown were woven in various localities and brought down to Alexandria for export. Doubtless many articles of use and luxury were manufactured here for home consumption or export of which we have no knowledge. The greatest product of the country was wheat. The hard labor of millions of peasants under the strict supervision of the Ptolemies yielded not only enough to supply home needs, but an enormous quantity for exportation. Antioch and Seleucia in like manner, Antioch, situated on the Arantes River, about twelve miles from the Mediterranean, was not only an imperial capital, but the beginning of a great caravan route from the sea to Mesopotamia and Persia. With the conquest of the Orient, the Greeks had ceased to be a purely maritime people, and were conducting an extensive overland trade along the network of roads built by the Persian kings and their Hellenistic successors. East of Antioch, the route passed through Seleucia, which was also the chief trading intermediary between the Persian Gulf and the upper waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It was the successor of Babylon and the parent of Baghdad. Blending of Nationalities the proportion of Greek to foreigners must have varied greatly according to circumstances. Now Cratus, Egypt, for example, contained natives, but the Greeks of that city held aloof from social and marital relations with them, and therefore maintained their language in relative purity. Ptolemais, Egypt, seems to have been equally exclusive. Alexandria, on the other hand, was exceedingly mixed. To Greeks and Macedonians must be added Egyptians, Semites, Persians, and many other nationalities. These people were by no means equal. As a rule, the Macedonians and Hellenes, generally grouped together as Greeks, were the only citizens. They had their tribes and deems like those of Athens, their magistrates, council, and assembly. People of other speech were only medics with such rights as the city and the king assured them. In the country and the native towns, the Greeks formed but a small percentage of the population. Mercenaries of that nationality on lands held directly from Ptolemy and small businessmen scattered widely along the Nile Valley were more inclined to intermarry with the natives, and from these unions arose a hybrid class who spoke two tongues and bore both Greek and native names. Satrapies The subject territory, as distinguished from the free Hellenic cities, was organized, as under Persian rule, in great administrative districts termed satrapies. It was clearly the conqueror's intention to employ both natives and Macedonians as satraps, while taking the precaution of transferring their military powers to special officers of his own nationality. 
This attempt to win the Persian aristocracy in his conflict with Darius proved a failure, and in the end he was obliged to substitute Macedonians as governors. A check on the satraps was found in keeping the commanders of great cities and fortresses directly dependent on the king, and even more in the separation of the financial from the military and civil administration. The finances of Egypt, for example, Alexander placed in the hands of Cleomenes, a Greek of Naupactus. During the long absence of the conqueror in the northeast and east, Cleomenes, through his absolute control of the revenue, made himself in reality dictator of Egypt and used his authority for frightful extortions. The treasury of the empire was established at Babylon in charge of Harpalus, a friend of the conqueror's youth. During the long absence of the king, Harpalus squandered a great part of the treasury and escaped with the rest to Greece. In greed and disloyalty he was but a type of the high officialdom of the new empire. Failure to assimilate European and Asiatic troops No obstacle, however, discouraged Alexander from his purpose of blending Asiatics and Europeans in one race socially and politically equal. He had married Roxana, a Bactrian princess, and afterward added a wife from each of the two royal Persian lines. At the same time, his great field marshals, Perdiccas, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Nearchus, and other high officials to the number of eighty, took to themselves Persian brides. On all without exception, Alexander bestowed dowries. At the same time, he made presents to the ten thousand Macedonian troops who had married Asiatic women. From the beginning of his campaigns, Alexander had introduced native troops into his army, and the majority of the force with which he invaded India were Asiatics. After his return, he planned to dismiss the aged and crippled Macedonians and to substitute for them 30,000 native youths trained and equipped in Macedonian style. The veterans finding themselves about to be displaced by men of a race whom they despised, were mortally offended and broke out in mutiny. The king yielded to the extent of giving his Macedonian forces the higher honor and pay. Despite every effort, the attempt to assimilate Europeans and Asiatics in the army proved a failure, and it was abandoned after his death. A Universal Empire while temporizing with his Macedonian troops, Alexander steadily advanced toward the goal of his ambition. A universal empire emancipated from every national restriction, an empire that knew no distinction of race or people. It was a new conception, far broader than anything the world had known before, and formed the political basis for a larger idea of humanity afterward taking form in Stoicism and Christianity. Although there survived feebly a spark of popular sovereignty in the military assembly of Macedonians, the source of power had become the person of the monarch. The absolute idea grew upon Alexander throughout his conquests, largely as a product of his own experiences.
the young king's extreme exertions, his incessant activity night and day, his physical sufferings from numerous wounds, and his excessive inclination to drink, while impairing his physical condition, cooperated with his marvelous successes in greatly affecting his mind. Month by month his companions saw in him a growing love of flattery and an increasing irritability at every opposition, however slight. No longer content with ordinary subservience, he demanded worship. For that is what prostration meant to a Greek or a Macedonian. Most of those who followed him through Asia, dependent as they were upon his caprice, granted him the honor with varying sincerity. Not satisfied with their homage, he permitted it to be made known to the Hellenic cities of the homeland that they ought to decree him a god. With characteristic independence, the Lacedaemonians replied, Since Alexander wishes to be a god, let him be one. At Athens, Demosthenes at first protested, but afterward, changing sides, advised his countrymen to give the bubble. Let us acknowledge him the son of Zeus for all I care, or the son of Poseidon if he prefers it. Athens accordingly decreed to place him as Dionysus among the gods of the city. Other states took similar action. Temples for his worship arose in various places, and on his return from Babylon, he gave audience to, quote, sacred legations, end quote, rather than political embassies, come from Hellas to pay him divine honors. The God-King Introduced into Europe Among the Greeks, the boundary between human and divine had never been sharply drawn. Great men in death became heroes, and the god Dionysus had lived as a man on earth. Every Greek state rested on a religious foundation and it was but natural that Alexander should seek such a basis for his empire. The Orient supplied the atmosphere of servile adoration of the king as superman or god. To this condition Hellenic thought and usage had to be adapted. Among the Greeks the motive to his deification was fear, or the desire to flatter, or the hope of gaining favor. A common sentiment, too, was the desire for protection, or gratitude for deliverance from peril. Hence the frequent epithet, Savior, applied to Hellenistic kings. Alexander must have assumed the title of divinity not merely to satisfy his craving for honors, but as the last step towards absolutism. Even on the throne, a mere man was bound at least by the general laws of humanity, and was responsible to public opinion but a god was above all law and accountability. After some hesitation, his successors followed his example, and thus perpetuated the god-king. In this manner was introduced into Europe an essentially oriental idea of the relation between the state and the individual. While Egyptians and Asiatics were groveling in the dust before their kings, the Greek republics had created for at least a part of their population a condition of freedom under self-government. In the individual, the result was the perfection of manliness, the development of a high type of self-control and self-respect. In society and government, a recognition of the dignity and worth of the individual souls that made up the body politic. The Hellenistic kingdom, however, put an end to the growth of freedom 
and in its stead universalized the oriental slavery of the people and gave it an indefinite lease of life. However sagacious, men were no longer to govern themselves or to give expression to their views for the improvement of state and society. Government was to rest in the hands of a god or of a superior sacred human being with a mandate from God, who brooked no opposition and needed no control, who selfishly or benevolently devised and executed with divine wisdom whatever he pleased for mankind. The idea, passed on from Alexander to the Roman principles and the Byzantine emperors, and to the modern monarchs who rule by divine right. While the government of Macedon rested on the traditional basis of nationality, that of the Seleucid realm and of Egypt was an artificial structure. The administrative system was an organization of Greek conquerors for the exploitation of the natives, and was wholly devoid of national or patriotic feeling. The masses might sincerely accept the godship of the sovereign, but his appeal to the higher officials could only reach their self-interest, their hope of reward or fear of punishment. The want of moral fiber that only patriotism and national feeling could supply was a fundamental weakness of both kingdoms. The Aetolian League, the Achaean League with the Hellenistic kingdoms we may contrast the federations of the Greek homeland. The union established by Philip, arbitrarily created and abounding in discord, proved short-lived. Soon afterward, the Aetolian League came into prominence. Originally an ethnos of primitive character, Aetolia began toward the close of the 4th century to assume the character of a union of cities. Early in the 3rd, she annexed Delphi, and thereafter employed the influence of the Amphictyonae in rapidly extending her league till it came to include nearly all central Greece, southern Sicily, and temporarily various cities of Peloponnese. In like manner, Achaea, beginning as an ethnos, changed somewhat more slowly to the federal organization of city-states. It was not till the inclusion of Sicion in 251 that the Achaean League could count as a power in Greece. Thereafter followed the admission of Corinth and other neighbors in rapid succession, till, early in the second century, it included all Peloponnese. There was rivalry between the two leagues, involving the shifting of cities back and forth, together with frequent Macedonian interference. Although both leagues engaged in forcible annexations, the great majority of admissions were at the request of the incoming states. Government of the Leagues The general principles of organization were the same for the two leagues. The fundamental institution of government was the assembly of all the citizens, like that of the city-state. It is known that in the Achaean League the voting was by cities, Presumably all present from a given city determined among themselves the attitude to be taken by their state, which thereupon probably cast a single vote, whatever its population. By the side of the assembly, as in the city-state, was the council, in the Italian League and probably in the Achaean, representing the cities according to their population. 
elections of magistrates and other matters of primary importance fell to the assembly whereas the council with its more frequent sessions gave attention to lesser business and to such as could not await the gathering of the people the chief magistrate was the general in the achaean league there were at first two and afterward one the commander of the army and highest civil executive the abandonment of the old republican board of officers in favor of a single magistrate added efficiency to the administration federal government the federal government had control of weights measures and coinage it conducted negotiations with foreign powers declared war and contracted alliances in sole command of the military forces it gave orders to the members to furnish their several contingencies each constituent city was guaranteed autonomy under a republican constitution implying security and justice for herself and her individual citizens her chief obligation was to put into the field the number of troops demanded and to support them at her own expense in the preservation of liberty the federal union contrasted favorably with the kingdoms of that age and in the development of strength it was a great improvement upon the city-states a solution of the most difficult of hellenic problems was at length found in the creation of a system of organization adapted to the greek character it is true that in time of war the federal government in entrusting to the states the levy and support of soldiers remained excessively weak and it was a misfortune that the two rival leagues existed side by side often at war with each other while their freedom was menaced by the greatly superior powers of the hellenic kingdoms and the roman republic their inability to survive under these adverse conditions does not detract from the truth that the federal union was the most highly developed political creation of the world before the rise of modern representative democracies such as those of great britain and the united states royal domains the gigantic empire of alexander and his successors kingdoms rested on a condition of the laboring masses which verged closely upon serfdom round about the free cities in western asia minor and more extensively in other parts of the realm were the great domains of the persian king which alexander seized for himself they were cultivated by peasants who lived in villages and were bought and sold along with the lands they tilled who were not absolutely bound to the soil but could move about from one locality to another evidently with the permission of their lord not wholly at the mercy of their local master they were under the jurisdiction and legal protection of judges appointed for them by the king they paid their sovereign a tribute in money or in kind a tenth of the annual produce there were peasants too on the feudal estates and on the communal lands of cities who rendered their dues to the lord of the commonwealth these arrangements had existed under the persian rule and were adopted with little modification by alexander similar were conditions in egypt while retaining proprietorship of all the soil ptolemy gave the income of many large estates to his officials and other favorites the temples also held in grand broad fertile tracts 
To his mercenaries, the king gave permission on fixed terms to reclaim and use wastelands. In peace, these clerics, lot holders, made their living by agriculture, but stood ever ready to answer the sovereign's call to arms. Vast tracts of grain land, specifically described as royal domain, were leased in small lots to peasants who had to render a fixed number of measures to the acre. The king possessed the monopoly of the oil industry and required for his use the production of a certain number of oil plants in each gnome, administrative district. Oppression of laborers The ordinary tributes, though heavy, were endurable, but the natives were subject to many other taxes and were required to perform in addition a variety of labors for which they received no pay, including the erection of royal buildings, the entertainment of traveling officials and of soldiers quartered upon them, the building and repair of dams and embankments along the Nile, the maintenance and extension of the whole irrigation system, and the reclaiming of wastelands. The capricious and arbitrary enforcement of these labors which took no account of the peasants' necessities, proved exceedingly oppressive. The laborers were kept under continual watch. Day and night custodians from the mercenary class guarded the crops lest the peasant take something for himself before the king has had his share. And while the aim of the administration was to confine the whole laboring population to its endless routine of toil, the growers of oil plants were the most rigorously bound to the soil. If they neglected their work to the extent of journeying to another gnome, they might be arrested and forced back to their wearisome tasks. Decline of Democracy In fact, the most deplorable feature of life in the Hellenistic Orient was the abject condition of the laborers. The voiceless multitude meekly accepted the terms of rent, purchase, and sale imposed upon them by those in authority. Though not precisely serfs, they were on the very brink of serfdom. In Europe, with rare exceptions, the native laborers of a community, as distinguished from the slaves, were free, and in democracies enjoyed the right to vote. A characteristic feature of the change from the 4th century to the Hellenistic age, however, was the decline of the democracy and of the laboring class. The masses were adversely affected by the economic developments attending the conquest of the Orient. Great wealth in land and money fell into the hands of Alexander's officers and of the aides and favorites of his successors, or of adventurers in business while people of moderate means became fewer and the poverty of the masses increased. In every considerable city swarmed the proletarians who could find no adequate employment and lived on the edge of starvation. As a class, they were no more to be blamed for their poverty than the few were to be praised for their wealth. If left to themselves, they could but die of hunger. In the interest of self-preservation, therefore, various cities, not simply Rhodes, Samos, and Carthage, but in time even Rome, found it necessary to supply them with a cheap or free grain. 
In both Greece and Rome, reformers attempted the economic and political redemption of the masses, but they could not prevail over the opposition of the rich. At the opening of the Christian era, democracy had almost totally vanished from the civilized world, and with it the thought that the poor might, as a class, be educated and treated with the consideration due to human souls. Three and a half centuries later, they were in a serfdom whose beginnings had been borrowed from the Orient, and it has been but recently, during the early centuries of modern times, that they have regained their freedom. General Decline of the Homeland The Greek homeland suffered through the easterly migration of her most ambitious and enterprising sons, which left the peninsula poor in creative energy and intelligence. Another factor that afforded a powerful impetus to her decline was the eastward shifting of commercial centers. From the 7th to the 4th centuries, the coast of Greece, washed by the Aegean Sea, belonged to the heart of Hellas, from which extended trade arteries to every part of the Mediterranean world. As the Hellenes expanded over Egypt and Western Asia, however, the center of commerce moved after them from Piraeus to Rhodes and Alexandria. The Athenian port lost nearly all its life, and the greater part of the trade left to the vicinity shifted to Corinth, which attained a new splendor as the occasional residence of the Macedonian kings. These circumstances made it the largest, wealthiest, and most beautiful city of the peninsula till its destruction at the hands of the Romans. Not least effective in thinning the population and destroying property were the wars between city-states or federal unions or between the Macedonian kings and the Hellenes, wars not less frequent than before the days of Philip and Alexander. Doubtless, too, the continued wasting of the soil and the spread of malaria tended further to rob the inhabitants of food and to sap their vitality. To all these destructive forces we must add the rising standard of living, the love of comfort and luxury, which induced men either to remain single or, if they married, to bring up few, if any, children with the result that the number and the size of families rapidly diminished. Although not hopeless at the time of the Roman subjugation, 146, the condition of the peninsula under the Romans steadily deteriorated till, early in the Christian era, the Hellenic Strabo could only describe the homeland of freedom and science in terms of desolation. End of chapter 28